welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 2, Missionary San Antonio. I'm Brandon Seal. Neither the sole Franciscan friar nor the sole Spanish soldier manning the mission San Miguel de Linares de los Araes had any idea what they were doing there. Though only a few miles away from the French border town of Natchitoches, Louisiana, they were forbidden to interact or trade with that post, and thus relied on a nearly 600-mile-long supply line back to Monclova that rarely made it to their modest little outpost. They were constantly short of provisions, and after two and a half years, they'd been reduced to a state of nature, little improved over that of the local Indians they were supposed to win over with their demonstrations of Spanish superiority. And what in the world could the Spanish king want with this godforsaken patch of forest anyway? There was no gold here, no discernible wealth of any kind. The woods around them could swallow in just a few years what it would take a man a decade to clear. The Indians bore them no love, particularly by comparison to the French, who had an uncanny knack for getting along with the same Indians that were happy to watch the Spaniards starve. The Spanish friar couldn't be sure, but it actually seemed like the local Indians had grown increasingly hostile of late, such that the friar and the soldier feared now to leave sight of the pathetic compound in which they lived. Indeed, two and a half years in, all the malnourished Spaniards had to show for their occupation of this site was a log storeroom, a chapel, a food plot, and a hen house. As the lonely pair of Spaniards went about their routine one June morning in 1719, they probably thought very little of the sudden appearance of a mounted French officer and a small detail of seven soldiers from nearby Natchitoches. Although intercourse was illegal with the French, it was a necessity for survival, and the Spanish friar and soldier had likely seen them before. It was probably a bit surreal, then, when the French officer ordered his men to detain the Spaniards and to confiscate his war booty whatever they might find at the mission. It didn't take them long to inventory everything. The Spaniards had only rags left for clothes. They had even begun to boil some of their leather goods for food the previous winter. The only things of any potential value were the vestments and religious symbols, which the French officer couldn't in good Catholic conscience sell for much. The officer looked around for anything that he might be able to take to justify his little raid. His eyes landed on the hen house which he bravely entered. He took the chickens, tied their feet together in a sort of daisy chain, and marched back outside with them slung over his shoulder, his frustration written clearly on his face. He tied off the end of the daisy chain to his saddle and flung the chickens across his horse's back. He then mounted and turned to address the Spanish friar, informing him that a state of war now existed between Spain and France, a war that would come to be called the War of the Quadruple Alliance, and that the administrator of Natchitoches, the silver-tongued Saint-Denis from the previous episode, had informed him that forces just like his were to march on Spanish holdings throughout North America. For too many years now, the French had endured, and then suddenly, one of the hens protested, flapped her wings, and set off her daisy-chained sisters. The flopping string on the horse's back spooked him, and he reared, tossing the French officer to the ground. Fearful for their commander's well-being, the French soldiers rushed to his aid and to calm the spooked horse. Before they had even reached him, the entire episode now had its name, The Chicken War. In the commotion, the Spanish friar disappeared into the woods and made his way back to his superior at a nearby mission in modern-day East Texas. His superior was the godfather of the Franciscan movement in North America, Father Antonio Margil de Jesus. Father Margil had co-founded the College of Caretro soon after he arrived to the New World in 1683 at the age of 26. He had served personally as a missionary in the Yucatan, in Costa Rica, and in Guatemala, but it would be in Coahuila and Texas where he would leave his most important legacy. Indeed, you can find statues to this great mission founder all along the mission trail, from Monterey, up through Lampasas, Nuevo León, and of course, up into San Antonio. It was Father Margil de Jesus, as guardian of the College of Caretaro, who had sent old ornery Father Olivares to found the Rio Grande missions in 1700, and who had so impressed Father Espinosa with his leadership that he would inspire him to take up the pen. 
Much of Espinosa's motivation for chronicling this period was to record in particular Margil de Jesus' role in it and to advance his claim for sainthood, for which he remains under consideration to this day. Then, in 1707, the great mission founder founded an entirely new missionary college, this one in Zacatecas, which would compete in a relatively benign manner with the College of Caretero, which Father Espinosa would rise to lead. And it would be Father Margil de Jesus and Espinosa personally who would lead the ill-fated second attempt to establish the missions in East Texas in 1716. Recall that in the previous episode, the Franciscan Father Olivares, Governor Martín de Alarcón, ten families from the Coahuilan frontier, and a handful of mission Indians from the Rio Grande missions had founded Mission San Antonio de Valero and San Antonio de Bejar on the banks of San Pedro Creek and the San Antonio River in May of 1718. A month and a half later, on June 17th, Governor Alarcón continued on to East Texas to rescue the Franciscans besieged there by a hostile native population from whom they had converted not a single Indian. More than disappointed, Governor Alarcón was downright distressed by what he found. The missions in East Texas, he saw, were hopeless. Worse, the prevalence of French goods and the testimony of the Franciscans stationed there confirmed the existence of an elaborate smuggling operation amongst the Rio Grande missions, commanded by Captain Diego Ramón, the East Texas missions, where Captain Ramón's son Domingo was posted, and French Natchitoches, where Captain Ramón's grandson-in-law, San Denis, held the post of administrator. And if all these names are confusing and you haven't listened to the first episode, I encourage you to do so. Otherwise, hold on a little longer. I think it'll come back to you. Governor Alarcón was already suspicious of the Ramones before he had set out on his expedition to found San Antonio, for which reason he had refused to take Captain Ramón along with him. Now, with the evidence before his eyes, the governor would add his voice to the Franciscans calling for Ramón's removal for engaging in illicit trade with the French. And then, magically, in June of 1719, just as charges against the Ramones were coming to a head, the Chicken War happened. Proper historians will chalk up the Chicken War as a minor skirmish on the edges of two empires vying for global domination and engaged in never-ending wars of prestige and power back in Europe. And there's not actual evidence for what I'm about to allege, but not being a proper historian, I will allow myself to engage in a little harmless speculation, particularly in a case like this, where there's just too much coincidence to ignore. Which is to say... Was it a coincidence that the French foray came out of Natchitoches, a post commanded by Saint-Denis, Captain Ramon's grandson by marriage? Was it a coincidence that the Indians that began to most menace the East Texas Franciscans were the same Indians amongst whom our old friend, the Spanish deer slayer and Captain Ramon's son-in-law, José de Urrutia, had lived for seven years? Was it a coincidence that the Ramones were, as a result of the Chicken War, able to make a compelling case to pull the Franciscans, who continued to denounce their smuggling operation, out of East Texas, since they clearly couldn't be protected there, and was it a coincidence that this little chicken war happened right as all of these charges were coming to a head against the Ramones back in New Spain? The simplest explanation, we are told, is often the correct one. And the simplest explanation for the chicken war, in my humble opinion, is that it was orchestrated by Captain Ramon and his family to conceal the evidence of their smuggling operation dedicated to evading royal monopolies and Spanish customs regulations. We like to think about history in terms of kings and queens and armies and religious movements. But for most people and most of history, life is about trying to put food on the table and to do maybe a little bit better than the people around them. And though it's often a convenient shorthand to ascribe historical events to great simplistic causes, just as often, and particularly as we'll see in our history of San Antonio, history is simply the collective byproduct of individuals responding to circumstances in ways that advance their own personal interests. Regardless of its causes, the Chicken War would set off a series of events that will concentrate people, resources, and royal attention on San Antonio in a way that couldn't have happened otherwise. And also, if you believe my contention that the Chicken War was really just the result of a few industrious individuals on the frontier trying to avoid royal monopolies and Spanish customs regulations, then this is just the first in a long line of actions setting San Antonians against nonsensical laws promulgated by distant bureaucrats who were largely indifferent to their plight. 
Returning to our story, by September 1719, as a result of the Chicken War, the East Texas missions were shuttered, and the entire population, soldiers, friars, and what civilians there were in East Texas, were ordered to pull back. Luckily, this time, and unlike when something similar had occurred in 1693, they had somewhere to pull back to. In the year and a half since its founding in May of 1718, San Antonio had done comparatively well. Its Spanish population was stable, and Mission San Antonio de Valero continued to steadily recruit local Indians, something that the East Texas missions had never been able to do. And with the arrival of the East Texas missionaries, San Antonio's population swelled and became an important focal point of Spanish colonial and missionary activity. So we should take a moment to talk in more detail about the Spanish colonial system, in as much as we can talk about it as a single coherent system. Because what it really was was the product of different groups in Spanish society vying for power, each with their own set of priorities. We can talk about three primary drivers of Spain's North American strategy, often summed up pithily as gold, glory, and God. The first and most basic drive, gold, was to create wealth for the crown. Spain's entire imperial system was designed to funnel money back to Spain and back to the crown itself. This resulted in a highly mercantilist, highly bureaucratic state antagonistic to individual initiative. Indeed, the frontier was one of the few places where men of ambition, but without political connections, could seek their fortunes. Though, as we've seen with the Ramones, to do this often meant to ride on the wrong side of the law. The crown knew, however, that to grow its tax base, it needed taxpayers to prosper and to fill the enormous blank spaces on the maps of their North American colonies. Conventional wisdom of the period held that one family is worth a hundred soldiers, an acknowledgement of the value of civilian settlers, as well as of Spain's never-ending challenges in actually attracting them to the frontier. Because the frontier, as you will soon grow tired of hearing me say, was a dangerous place. And the Spanish army, the glory-driven second group propelling Spain's colonial advance, often had other priorities than protecting poor Spanish farmers and ranchers on the edge of civilization. This is because Spain's military prestige was tied up in its contest with the other great European powers. Defeating France on a European battlefield, or capturing an English Caribbean plantation, or discovering advanced native civilizations from whom they could extract wealth, these were glorious ends. But chasing a bunch of horse Indians through the empty expanses of the North American Great Plains? That was a thankless and glorious endeavor. Yet even more thankless than protecting settlers, and certainly far less appreciated, was the army's charge to protect the godly Franciscan missionaries, the third leg of Spain's colonial stool. It's easy to be cynical about the goals of these Spanish missionaries with 300 years of distance between us and them, to view them as mere pawns of Spain's imperial ambitions, or to snicker at their naivete and desire for martyrdom. But that's not fair. These dudes were believers. They were absolutely obsessed with bringing Christianity to Native Americans, and they were absolutely fearless in doing it. Yet despite their zealotry, they were actually quite methodical, constantly refining their modus operandi over the previous half-century as they had led Spain's imperial advance up through the heartland of northern Mexico through Querétaro, Zacatecas, and Coahuila. They began by arriving with gifts for the local tribal leaders, trinkets really, but demonstrations of the benefits of association with Spanish society and, of course, of the Christian faith. They would make a concerted effort to learn the language of the locals to facilitate their ability to minister to them, something they always did with remarkable speed. They would seek solicitations of interest from the natives for the establishment of a mission, which they would take back to their superiors and to the civil authorities, who invariably found it hard to stand in the way of the spread of the king's faith when his putative subjects were requesting it. And so, a mission would be authorized. And as the name suggests, the understanding was that these would be temporary enterprises, until such time as enough locals could be converted to the faith and turned into regular tax-paying subjects of the king. In fairness, it should be noted that this was not always a mutually agreeable or entirely voluntary arrangement with the locals. When interest levels amongst the Native Americans was low, shall we say, more forceful measures were occasionally employed. As one reverend father put it, quote, 
There are some Indians who are hungry and accepting of the faith through the enticement of food. And then there are those who require the king's weapons to convince them of the benefits of civil society. End quote. And so, we see the Franciscans' dependence on the military to perform their work. And if we think about it just a little, we can see too why the crown might have liked having the missionaries along with the military to keep them in check. Yet we can also understand why they would have each resented the presence of the other. Recall that in both the 1691 expedition which named San Antonio and the 1718 expedition which founded it, the secular and religious leaders not only refused to talk to each other, they refused to even travel together. It's almost like the setup for a bad sitcom, like pairing the Marine Corps with the Peace Corps and making them share bunk beds. Actually, I guess that's how American foreign policy works, a carrot and a stick, so maybe it shouldn't seem so unfamiliar to us after all. With the retreat of the East Texas missions following the Chicken War, 1719 saw both Father Margil de Jesus and Father Espinosa in San Antonio, and both champing at the bit to get back to mission founding. The advantages of San Antonio over East Texas, which we discussed at length in the previous episode, were apparent to both of them, as was the fact that the region could actually support a much larger population than the Mission Valero could serve by itself. That same year, 1719, Father Margil de Jesus petitioned the new governor of Coahuila, the Marquis de San Miguel de Aguayo, to found a second mission in the San Antonio area. He appealed to the region's bountifulness. He pointed to the abundance of missionary talent in San Antonio and the early quick success of the Mission Valero. And he cited the need for his College of Zacatecas, no less than the College of Caretaro, to have a midway point to supply any future attempts to proselytize in East Texas. Luckily for Father Margil de Jesus, in the wake of the Chicken War and in recognition of the difficulty of maintaining a foothold in East Texas, the importance of San Antonio was becoming apparent as far away as Spain. And so as a condition of his appointment to the governorship, the Marquis was ordered to reinforce San Antonio with as many missionaries, soldiers, and settlers as he could. The Marquis, to be fair, needed little convincing. He was a colonizer and an imperialist at heart, and burned with ambition to make his mark on the New World. He had twice made proposals to lead expeditions to settle the northern extremities of New Spain at his own expense, which he could easily afford, having come to the New World to manage one of his family's estates, a quaint little spread that encompassed about half the state of modern Coahuila. Indeed, when he was appointed governor and captain general of Texas in 1719, it was in no small part due to his repeated offers to make available his own ample resources for the benefit of the office. Given this background, Father Margil de Jesus' proposal for a second mission in San Antonio was a no-brainer, and the Marquis assented in February 1720. It probably didn't hurt that Father Margil de Jesus had offered to name the new mission after the Marquis. The Marquis then undertook the reinforcement of San Antonio with greater zeal than anyone could have expected. He not only personally deployed the resources necessary to make the settlement of Texas a success, he actively sought first-hand knowledge of the province from the most experienced Spaniard on the frontier, José de Urrutia, that Spanish soldier who had gone native and risen to command the armies of the East Texas Indians against the Apaches, and who had been advising the Marquis since 1715. As the son-in-law of Captain Ramón, this also put the Ramones back in government favor and secured their support for the Marquis's expedition so that when the Marquis crossed the Rio Grande on March 20, 1721, with 500 people, he marched into Texas with more support than any European who had ever preceded him. He arrived to San Antonio on April 4th, and a few days later, he and Father Margil de Jesus founded the Mission San Jose y San Miguel de Aguayo, about five miles south of the Mission Valero, which in 1719 had moved to the future site of La Villita on the east bank of the San Antonio River. Mission San Jose would also be founded on the east bank of the San Antonio River, though it would be moved to the west bank in 1727 and to its final location in 1740. By selecting a site downstream of the confluence of the San Pedro and San Antonio Rivers, and with slightly more advantageous topography, the Mission San Jose would be blessed from the start by fertile soil and good agricultural yields, and it would also be blessed by the energies of Father Margil de Jesus and the hard-won experience of the East Texas missions. 
The Marquess of Wyo's 1721-1722 expedition would leave behind 219 soldiers, 10 missions, and several dozen civilian settlers throughout Texas. Spain's control of the province would never be seriously contested again by external powers. The Marquess would also leave behind thousands of livestock, which he would drive west to east across almost all of Texas's rivers, marking it as one of the first and assuredly one of the most difficult cattle drives in Texas's history. Others had come before and seeded the range, but the Marquis would leave behind some 2,800 horses, 4,800 cattle, and 6,400 sheep and goats. On his return trip through San Antonio in March 1722, the Marquis would attempt to found one more mission, the Mission San Francisco Javier de Najera. Though the mission would be abandoned within a few years, its site and the irrigation ditch that fed it would both be adopted by a later mission founded there nine years later. Yet with all this talk of missions and missionaries, we shouldn't forget that all this time a hundred or more civilian settlers were trying to make San Antonio home. And it wasn't easy. Early harvests were ruined by rodents. Flash floods destroyed both of Mission Valero's first two locations. And in 1721, a fire ravaged many of the humble jacales which the initial settlers had built. The Marquis took the opportunity presented by the fire to relocate the San Antonio de Bejar Presidio and its neighboring civilians, or vecinos as they called each other, to a more advantageous spot a little further south, between San Pedro Creek and the San Antonio River. There, at a spot that would one day boast the city hall of the seventh largest city in the United States, he ordered the construction of a plaza, the Plaza de Armas, around which were built storerooms, barracks, small houses, and a humble residence for the Presidio commander. And it was good that the Marcos was focused on the Presidio and on the defense of the tenuous settlement, because the period from its founding in 1718 to 1723 had been an uncharacteristically peaceable one something that changed in August 1723 when the Apaches announced their presence to the settlers of San Antonio. In a nighttime raid, they snuck into the settlement and rode off with 80 of the Presidio's horses. As we alluded to in the previous episode, however, the 50 or so men now stationed in the San Antonio Presidio were not novices to frontier warfare. They were veterans of the wars of Coahuila, and they had learned the importance of attack as a part of any strategy of defense. They set out almost immediately after the raiders, tracking and following them 338 miles up into the hill country where they ambushed them, killed 34 Apaches, captured 120 horses, and returned with 20 women and children as, let's call them what they were, hostages. The presence of the 20 hostages back in San Antonio infuriated the friars. For one, by simply being Apaches, they terrified the local Coahuiltecans that the friars were trying to convert. And two, the act of taking hostages contradicted the friars' message of peace that they saw as critical to their success in being able to recruit amongst the local natives. Though the hostage episode eventually led to the Presidio commander's removal after unceasing complaints by the friars, it may also have contributed to the next decade of relative peace that San Antonio enjoyed. The Apaches seemed to have been chastened by the counterattack and fearful for their hostages' safety. And even when the Apaches raided again in 1726 and killed two in 1730, they were relatively minor convulsions during a comparatively peaceful period that allowed San Antonians to sink roots on the new Spanish frontier. A tour by a royal inspector in 1724 made official what had already become true in fact. Following the Royal Inspector's report, San Antonio would be the focal point for New Spain's northeastern frontier. All resources allocated for East Texas would be pulled back to San Antonio instead, and the Presidio there would be charged with the protection of the entire line from Louisiana to the coast to the Rio Grande missions near modern-day Piedras Negras. Father Espinosa, who had spent time in San Antonio following the shuttering of the East Texas missions on his way to assume the guardianship of the College of Caretaro, read the political tea leaves correctly and saw his opportunity to go all in on San Antonio something that frankly made a lot of practical sense as well, given the success of Father Margil Jesus' Mission San Jose and of Father Olivares' Mission Valero, which by 1727 had 273 converts. And so, in early 1731, Father Espinosa stepped down from the guardianship of his college 
as his mentor, Father Margil de Jesus, had done 10 years before, to go back into the trenches and to personally lead the reestablishment of the East Texas missions in San Antonio. On March 5, 1731, Nuestra Señora de la Purísima Concepción de Acuña, or Mission Concepción, was formally reestablished by Father Espinosa on a spot at or near the failed Mission Javier de Najera, just below where Alasan, León, and San Pedro Creeks join the San Antonio River. The work already performed on the previous mission's irrigation ditch, which would become known as the Concepcion Ditch, as well as its protected location between several of the other missions, would give it an important leg up, and almost from the beginning, it would prove to be among the most consistently successful of the San Antonio missions. On that same day, Father Espinosa refounded another of his East Texas missions. This, the Mission San Juan Capistrano, or Mission San Juan, about seven miles downstream from Mission Bolero. Mission San Juan had also been refounded in East Texas in 1721, but floundered there again for all the same reasons. And though it would fare better in San Antonio than it ever did in East Texas, it always struggled, its lands pinched between Mission San Jose and Mission Espada to the south, without sufficient space to support its herds or its crops. And so lastly, and also on March 5, 1731, Mission San Francisco de las Texas, the original Spanish mission in Texas, was also reestablished, this time in San Antonio, and this time by the name San Francisco de la Espada known today as Mission Espada for short. Originally founded in East Texas in 1690, it had been abandoned three years later and reestablished in 1721 near Barton Springs in Austin, before finding its final home at a spot just a mile or so downriver from Mission San Juan. Like all the missions, it was granted substantial ranch land south of San Antonio, in the area of modern-day Floresville. Yet as the southernmost mission with the easiest access to its ranch lands, the Espada mission would take a more active interest in ranching than any other mission, and would in many respects be the incubator for many of the ranching techniques that would soon spread throughout the San Antonio area. All in all, San Antonio was the great success story of the Franciscan missionary system in New Spain, and the culmination of the life's work of men like Father Olivares, who founded Mission Valero, Father Margil de Jesus, who founded Mission San Jose, and Father Espinosa, who had reestablished Mission Concepcion, Mission San Juan, and Mission Espada on the banks of the San Antonio River. That said, their moment in San Antonio's sunshine was brief. Father Olivares broke his leg only a few months after founding Mission Valero, and by 1720, he had returned to Querétaro, where he died in 1722, a veteran of 57 years of missionary work in the Americas. That same year, Father Margil de Jesus returned to his college in Zacatecas, and would die just four years later there in 1726. That same year, Father Margil de Jesus returned to his college in Zacatecas and would die just four years later in 1726. And in late 1731, after refounding the three East Texas missions, Father Espinosa would go back to Caretaro to work on his great multi-volume chronicle of these Franciscan glory years, which is still today the most valuable historical resource of the period. In truth, however, the legacy of the great mission founders, for all their personal bravery and religious zeal, was always more transient than the people who actually stayed in San Antonio. And from nothing, just 13 years prior, by 1731, San Antonio boasted some 50 soldiers, perhaps twice as many civilians, and several hundred mission Indians. Almost all the citizens were farmers and stock raisers. There was some work to be had with the Presidio, and a few had started trading in earnest with the native populations, and more profitably, albeit illegally, with the French in Louisiana. And the most prominent of these traders remained the Ramonistas, who didn't miss a step after Captain Diego Ramon's death in 1724, and did not fail to capitalize on the changes brought about by their little chicken war. Saint-Denis, the silver-tongued Frenchman and grandson-in-law of Captain Ramon, was back in Louisiana now and more prominent than ever. Diego Ramon Jr. had just assumed the command of the Rio Grande Presidio after his father's death. And in 1733, Captain Ramon's son-in-law, our Spanish leather-stocking, José de Urrutia, would be appointed to command the San Antonio Presidio. Illicit as their activities may have been, 
these Ramonistas were establishing the crucial trade routes that would allow San Antonio to survive for the next 100 years. Yet don't be fooled, San Antonio in 1731 was no quaint colonial town. Its presidio had no walls, its town had no government, its inhabitants had no permanent housing to speak of. Still, Spanish culture had finally taken fragile root in Texas, and the authorities in Mexico City and Spain were not going to let it wither away. In the next episode, the King of Spain himself will take an interest in establishing a true, permanent civil society in San Antonio, built on the foundations laid by these first fearless frontiersmen. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was performed by my lovely wife and in-house copy editor, Susanna. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend, Noel McKay, for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I want to recommend Vito Alessio Robles' book, Coahuila y Texas en la Época Colonial. A Mexican Revolutionary War General and the godfather of the history of early Texas, Alessio Robles draws extensively from Father Espinosa's Crónica de los Colegios de Propaganda Fide de la Nueva España. Also this week, I'm going to recommend going to the Tower of the Americas in downtown San Antonio. Go to the observation deck and look around and try, if you can, to wipe away everything you see except for the tiny limestone belfries of Concepcion and San Jose, the faint outlines of the Alamo, and the crowded confines of the Plaza de Armas. It's the closest you can get to appreciating the isolation of this little frontier outpost 300 years ago and of the topography onto which it was placed. 